Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Welcome to our first weeknight Bible study of 2023, hopefully not our last. We'll see. My hope is to go through 1 Samuel with you all, and if you don't quit on me, we may go on to 2 Samuel and keep going from there, partly because I love these books. Uh, I think they're amazing. I think they're highly entertaining. I don't know how anybody can think the Bible is boring if they actually sit down and, and read it. Uh, even the book of Numbers, we can talk about that another time, uh, but especially the books of Samuel. But also, I feel like they're they're a good kind of laboratory for talking about how to read the Bible well uh, and learning and developing and practicing skills to help us become better readers of Scripture. So that's that's my goal. Is we'll talk a little bit about introductory material and things that are going on in the background and connections to other passages. But but my hope is actually to spend a lot of time just reading the passage together uh, and then learning from one another. Uh, You know, I may do a little bit of, did you notice this? Did you notice this? And what did that remind you of? But I'd like the majority of that actually to arise from, from you guys as we read the text and discuss it. We are experimenting with recording this. I don't know if that discussion part's going to work really well with the recording, but we'll give it a go for the sake of a couple of our shut-ins and others who'd like to be here and aren't able. So so watch your language. Just kidding. <laughs> but that's just audio. You don't have to worry about your face getting out there. So why don't I pray? And let's get started. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And for the level of access we have to it, unparalleled in any generation that's gone before us. Lord, we pray that you would kindle in us a love for this precious gift. That you would develop in us a desire to know you through your word. We pray that you would grant continued opportunity to read it, to read it well, and to grow in skill as we do so. And we pray above all that we might see your son in his word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Before we jump into the text of 1 Samuel, uh, I thought I'd read a couple passages from the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Not because this is scripture, uh, but to give you an idea of where I am coming from. Most of you are also Presbyterian. Some of you aren't. Uh, some of you are Baptists, you'll find the London Baptist Confession is taken over almost directly from the Westminster Confession, and it lays out an understanding of Scripture that affects how I approach it. You may approach it differently, and that is, you are still welcome here by all means, but just to give you a better idea of where I'm coming from, uh, and because of that, the questions I'm likely to ask uh, or the ways I'm likely to approach 
places where there's tension or where I have questions or where I have difficulty resolving the relationship between one part of Scripture and another. So Westminster Confession, chapter 1, begins by laying out this doctrine of Holy Scripture. It asserts that all of Scripture is inspired. Uh, It lists the books of the Old and New Testament, and then it says about them, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule and faith. Sorry, the rule of faith and life. So I'm going to be approaching the text as inspired. Which means it bears God's authority. Uh, it comes to us from Him, mediated through people. Uh, it goes on to say in section four the authority of Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is received, uh, to be received because it is the Word of God. Right? It has authority, not because the church tells us it has authority, not because someone for whom we have great respect tells us it has authority, but because it is God's word. And that is where its authority comes from. So scripture is inspired. Scripture has authority over us because it is God's word. And that will affect how I approach it as an interpreter. Um. In section 6, it says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the Church, common human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. So we're dependent on the help of the Spirit for a saving understanding. And then uh, a particularly important point, too, uh, one from section 7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. We'll call that due use. Or we'll just say study. Uh, to paraphrase that, as you know from experience, I imagine, some parts of Scripture are more clear and other parts of Scripture are less clear. And so that both invites and requires us to apply ourselves uh, to work at coming to understand Scripture, knowing that as we do everything we need to know in order to be saved, to understand who we are and who God is and to be in a saving relationship with Him, that is clear and accessible by the help of the Spirit to everyone. 
You don't need a degree from a seminary in order to understand enough of the Bible to know that you belong to Christ. But there are going to be some parts of Scripture that are more clear and some parts of Scripture that are less clear. And so connected to that from section 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Um, A term for that that has been used throughout the history of church is the rule of faith. Um, Which, to put differently, is the Bible is its own interpreter. When we're trying to understand the meaning of a passage that is difficult, our first recourse should be to other parts of Scripture that are more clear, that will help us understand the parts that are less clear, and will also help serve as guards against wrong understandings of those difficult passages. So these are a few of my working presuppositions as I read the text. I read the text because... It's inspired by God. I read the text as a text that has authority over me as I read and seek to understand and seek to explain it to others. Uh, I understand that my task requires uh, the Holy Spirit to help me, that I might understand something of the text, but I want to understand it rightly. I want to understand it well for my good and God's glory, apart from the help of the Spirit. Uh, I understand that it, it it requires study because some things are more clear and some are less, uh, and that I'll interpret best when I use other parts of Scripture to interpret those things that are less clear by looking at those that are more clear. So I know many of you will share these assumptions. Some of you will not. All of you are welcome, uh, but I wanted to put this out there so that you have a better sense of where I'm coming from as I read the text. And so why I do some of what I do as I'm reading it. Um, Because these things are true, I think other things that follow from these assumptions, because these things are true, I would invite you to ask any question. Now, because these things are true, um, sometimes I might recoil from the posture of your question, right? If you have an antagonistic question, still ask it. You are free to do that. Know that I'm not going to approach it from that perspective. I'm not going to ask a question framed in such a way that I'm trying to undermine the authority of the text, unless I get crickets during our discussion. Then I might do that to get someone to answer. Um, I did that at a class that I was teaching a Bible survey, Old Testament, New Testament survey, and I'd ask questions like that because the students weren't talking. And as the teacher, I had authority, right? And so they would just be like, okay, and they'd write it down. And so I I developed this, the hat of heresy, where I would actually put on the hat of heresy when I asked that question so that they know that the answer is no, right? And then that would get discussion going. So we may end up doing that. But feel free to ask any question. Um, Together with that, you also have to be ready for me to say, I don't know. (laughs) Right? I will labor to find out, but 
But I've told you in my presuppositions, right, that I believe some parts of Scripture are more clear than others. And so we may run across a passage where you ask a question, and I don't know. And I will tell you. I won't try and make up an answer on the spot. I will, if I don't know, I will say I don't know. Uh, and hopefully that's okay with you. Hopefully you prefer an honest answer versus a one that's made up. Um, also, I think you get this from the presuppositions, but my my tendency, especially in the face of unanswered questions, is always going to be to trust the text. To trust the text. And we'll talk about that as we read. There are lots of places where, as we read Scripture, we feel tension. Right, where this passage in relation to another passage we've read, it doesn't seem to make sense, and it leaves us scratching our head, um, and that's okay. That's okay for us to actually be left scratching our head. We don't like that. Uh, we want to get past scratching our head and to understand the relationship. And I believe that there is an understanding of the text that will bring all of those things that puzzle us into relationship with one another. That doesn't mean we'll get it in the course of one weekday evening as we read the text together. So my reflex is always going to be to trust the text in those places where I feel tension. We'll see some of those in First Samuel. Um, in fact, I'll give you a preview of one. When, we, when we're introduced to David, and David is introduced to Saul, right? Um, in the first chapter, Saul is troubled by this evil spirit from the Lord, and so David enters into his service and plays the harp, and that calms him, and Saul is able to go on about his business ruling as king. In the next chapter, we get David and Goliath. And if you remember, in the midst of that scene, as David comes and brings things to his brothers, and, and Goliath comes out and utters this charge or this challenge to the army of the Israelites, and then David's like, well, fight him. And so somebody brings him to Saul, and then he goes out to fight, and Saul turns to his commander. He's like, who is that guy? We'll talk about that when we get there. But this is a place where there's, there's something going on in the text that should make us scratch our head. What is going on, right? Uh, and there are people who will read the text and suggest uh, that someone was asleep at the wheel, right? You get this picture of, of like a, a preschool activity with paper and scissors and scotch tape, and they cut a whole bunch of things up, and they put them back together, and then this is the end product, right? As though no one noticed before sending it to the publisher that these things don't jive together. I feel like that's a self-defeating argument, actually, uh, because you're suggesting that whoever had his last hand on the text didn't notice until you came along and pointed it out, uh, which seems a little silly. Like, there's probably more going on. So um, one other thing, because it's both human and divine, Not half human, half divine. Both human and divine, right? Inspired but mediated through people. Um, all of the resources available to a human author as they write are available to and used by the authors of Scripture, right? Um, which means there was this rally cry around biblical criticism in the 19th century that we should read the Bible like any other book. There's a sense in which I would argue that's true. 
now the people who made that statement meant by it that we should read the Bible like any other book in the sense that it does not have authority. It doesn't have any claim over us. It doesn't have any special status. And so then we can pick it apart fearlessly because it's just another book. And I think that's wrong. But we should read it like any other book in the sense that right, the tools that are available to us as readers when we read a novel or the newspaper or an essay, those same tools are available to us as the reader, to Paul, to Moses, to others as they wrote. And so they make use of them. right? And so we should be alert to those things and and pay attention to those things as we read. And to go back to that question of when did Saul meet David, right? When we're watching a TV show, we know the cues, and we know when you know we see the murder happen at the beginning of the episode, and then it says 24 hours earlier, and then it starts to narrate what led up to that, right? But we don't know those cues well when we read scripture. And so we do things like assume that because chapter 17 is after chapter 16 in the order that we're reading it, that it necessarily happened chronologically in that order. And we don't pay attention to what clues might be there because the authors of scripture will do things like narrate things out of order for other reasons, right? Because they're not giving us the news report, but they're actually trying to get us to see things. In that case, I think, see things about how Saul is slowly coming apart. Uh, but we'll talk about that more when we get there. Any questions yet at this point about these presuppositions? You share them, yes. You share some of them. You're like, wow, this guy's crazy. This is the last time I'm coming. All right, we'll see if I can scare you away a little later. Okay, I'll move these for now. Let's get you all talking for a bit. What do you think of when you think of the book of 1 Samuel? What comes to mind? David. Okay. Why, is, why, why does David come to mind? It's called Samuel. Yeah, spoiler alert, by the way. Samuel dies before we even get into 2 Samuel. So maybe the guy asleep at the wheel is the one who named it. Yeah. Okay. We talk about First Samuel. First and Second Samuel are, are one book, right? Uh, there were physical limitations to how much would fit on one scroll before it got just too unwieldy to use. So that's why we have a division in what's actually one book. So First and Second Samuel. So we think about David. Think about Hannah and her desire for a child. What else comes to mind? What kind of book? This would have been a good question to start with earlier. What kind of book is Samuel? First and second Samuel. Oh, that was fast. Okay, history. Are you sure? Are you sure? It has poetry. In fact, well, it was, oh, better on history. Okay. It does have some poetry. Uh, four particular poems are spaced in a way that helps us interpret 
uh, the rest of the book, actually. One of them we'll meet quite early. Okay, so history. Narrative. Okay. So in narrative, we often we think of words like story or storytelling. If I was going to be particularly naughty, yeah, okay, action, adventure. Uh, some people would think of the word fiction in relation to narrative, which stands in a little bit of tension with our idea of history. Uh, I put quotes around that, right? Um, because thinking about how fiction is written can help us understand how to read narrative. But using the label fiction sets us up not to think about what kind of writing we'll see, but whether or not it's true. Because we associate truth value, and in particularly not true, with the word fiction. So there are people who will write about Samuel, and they'll use fiction to describe what kind of writing we'll see without necessarily saying they think it's untrue, although some of them do. But I would take their point and not their word. Good. History, narrative, some poetry, some story. I'm going to push back a little bit on history, not because I think it's not historical, but because our ideas and our expectations for history are shaped by much later writing. And in particular, when we think of history, we think of critical history. Does anybody know who the first critical historian is? Called the father of history. He's Greek. It's Herodotus. And it's not that no one before Herodotus wrote about the past. It's that Herodotus, uh, after the Persian Wars, he, as a veteran of those wars, went around and interviewed all kinds of people all over the Greek world to try and reconstruct what actually happened with the assumption that a, a straightforward narrative from one or even a couple of people is, was not going to give him direct access to what actually happened, that he was actually going to have to take um, competing accounts of what transpired and sort between them and then give his own account of what he thinks in light of his research, actually transpired. That's normally what we think of when we use the word history. We think of that kind of endeavor, a critical reconstruction of what happened based on research but with competing perspectives. And that's not what we have with, with Samuel. That's important to recognize. That will help alleviate some of the tension that we feel or the people try and point out and make us feel as we read the text. Um, and with any kind of historical writing, we always have a limited perspective and a specific end, right? a reason it's told. And recognizing that will help us understand what's in front of us and how to read it. right? Um, and so that comes back to what do we think of when we think about Samuel, First and Second Samuel. We think about David, we think about Hannah. What else? What is the book of Samuel about? Okay, I'm going to throw Romans 8.28 at Samuel. You're not wrong, right? You all are going to throw me out if I say that's wrong. Um, but more, more particularly, uh, okay, 
That's all about kingship. Yeah, the establishment of a king, who rules as king, what does a good king look like, what kind of king does Israel need, all of that wrapped up under this rubric of kingship. All right, I want to jump into the text. All right, we'll have a lot a lot more that will come up, I think, as we read, but let's let it come up as we, as we do. I'll just throw one more thing out there about to kind of bring these things together about how I think about Samuel and how it's written. It is history. Some of you are going to frown because you think these things don't go together. We're taught to think these things don't go together. It's history. It's theology. And it's art. Right? As history, it's going to tell us something about who we are and who God is, and how God has acted for his people. As theology is going to delve into God's ways with his people, and his work in a specific people to work toward the bringing of a Messiah. And as art, it's going to be very skillfully written in ways that will delight and entertain us as we read all of these things together. All right, this is a book about kings. So where does it begin? First Samuel, chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. But Hannah had no children. Are you confused yet? It's a book about the development of kingship, the monarchy, the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. And we get a certain man from this country town in a family that's probably filled with strife, right? Every time there's more than one wife in Scripture, it's, it's never good. What a place to start. What a place to start. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I'm sure that stopped her crying. He just knew the, the perfect thing to say in that moment. Oh dear. What a place to start, to start this grand narrative of the establishing of a new way of governing Israel. It starts with a seemingly random family that has strife in the household. It starts with a barren woman. Is that something we've seen elsewhere? I see a couple of people nodding. Where else have we seen something grand start with a picture like this? Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah. So Rachel's barren. Sorry. Yes, Abraham. 
right? And the, the long wait for Isaac. Never mind Ishmael. Never mind all the children who come through Keturah that we find out about kind of crammed in at the end of that narrative. Where else? Elizabeth, the birth of John the Baptist. We skipped one in proximity here. Uh, Samson, right? the birth of Samson, who begins to deliver Israel. And then there's Mary. She's not barren. She's a virgin. At the beginning of the coming of Christ, finds its genesis in a situation so much like this. Right? God does great things in the history of redemption in small and unlikely places, including households full of strife with a barren wife. I wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it did. Sorry if that's distracting. All right, where do we go from here? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, verse 9, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. I'm going to keep reading, and I'm going to ask you guys about what you see. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. What do you see? What stands out to you as we read that? Okay. Yeah, we see, I'm going to erase some stuff to make room. We see Hannah's trust. Good. And Hannah's prayer. And what else? He does, but, right? Um, what other impressions does this text give you of Eli? What's Let's dig into that. Eli. So uh, he does. He does stop. He does pray with her. He does pronounce a, a blessing over her and ask God to answer her prayer. But that's not how he starts. Right? I, I would not want Eli as my minister. Yeah. He's insensitive. That's a very, very kind way to put it. He jumps to conclusions. The text itself will later call him dull. And even that English word is very kind. Uh, 
<laughs> we'll talk about it when we get there. It's not very nice. And it makes all sorts of puns on his obesity as well. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so Eli's insensitive. He jumps to conclusions. Think about that in light of the rest of the narrative. Right? Is this the first time that Hannah's family has ever shown up at the sanctuary? No. Is this the first time in their life together as a family she's been troubled by this specific issue? So if Eli has been doing his job, which we already have questions about, is this probably the first time he's seen her in tears in the temple? Eli's not the most perceptive guy. Elkanah's maybe shouldn't have asked the specific question he asked, but he's a little more perceptive than Eli. But Eli, who is Eli? He's the boss. He's the spiritual father of Israel, right? We've come fresh from the book of Judges, where we get like a bird's eye view of how terrible things are in Israel. And we see what that looks like in terms of their military and political leaders. But here's a close-up view of what that looks like among their spiritual leaders. It's not just a political problem. The one who should be teaching them how to walk with the Lord, how to grow in prayer, how to listen to his word, looks up from his phone when Hannah walks into the temple, assumes she's drunk, and starts chewing her out right there in the middle of worship. And this is the chief priest at this time. That gives us a glimpse of how dark spiritually this moment is. And his leadership as priest is contrasted with the faithfulness of this otherwise anonymous family. Right. Well, that's a good question. What does the text say? Right? It says, Now Eli was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. That's a good question. Well, and this isn't the temple, actually. Right? This is at Shiloh. Yeah. So we're in this weird space where we're in between the tabernacle and the building of Solomon's temple. And there's some kind of semi-permanent sanctuary at Shiloh. Was it still a tent? Was it a building? We're not, that doesn't really get clarified for us. Um, but yeah, she's there at the place appointed for worship. And presumably because of where Eli is described as being, she's not actually inside where only the priests could go. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 So, so that leaves us with questions about, yeah. Yeah. Like where are the other people? Uh, where we, like we would expect large crowds if this is the kind of annual feast we think it is. We would expect a lot of people to be there. And, and it may be that there are a lot of people there and maybe outside of times of stated worship, right? She wanders up to the church and finds it unlocked and goes in to pray. Or maybe that's actually kind of a, a barometric pressure reading on worship in Israel at this point in its history that that there should be huge crowds there, and actually it's, it's a handful of families uh, like Hannah's. So, good. 
yeah, we, we find out a little bit more about Hophni and Phineas later. Uh, here it's just mentioned that uh, they, together with Eli, are priests of the Lord. Turns out they're not good priests. Yeah. 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 Despite his outward actions leading up to this, there's something about the nature of Eli's office that in his exercise of that office, Hannah is comforted by his word. There's this phenomenon that happens when we read the Psalms that you may have noticed where you'll read the Psalm that's almost all lament. And then there's this sudden turn that makes no sense just reading the text of the psalm where they they burst forth into praise as though their prayer has been answered. That is probably the writing down of the kind of prayer Hannah prayed here, actually. But we get to see it from a different angle in this interaction as Hannah brings her prayer, which this prayer she prays we don't have access to. She gets that oracle from the priest that says the Lord will answer your prayer and then it changes her countenance. So maybe. That's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, he, he does seem to backpedal a little bit. Um, I would, I don't get an apology really, right? But there is, yeah, but there is a change in his posture toward her. Yeah. As he, she pours forth an explanation which he then doesn't question but instead responds to. Yeah, that's a very interesting way that it's worded. Yeah, because Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition. Um, she never spelled out for Eli what her petition was. And he never asks, which is also interesting. She explains her posture, that she's not this worthless woman, but she's been pouring out her soul before the Lord, but she doesn't ever say why. The closest she comes is, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation, verse 16. Uh, and then Eli says, the God of Israel grant your petition. I never even asks what the petition was. Yeah. In ancient Israel, right, if if Eli, once he looks up from his phone or whatever, is paying enough attention to realize, oh, this is the second wife of a household full of children from the other one, right? Or even just seeing a distraught young woman of childbearing age pouring out her soul in the temple. Probably doesn't take him very long once he realizes she's not drunk to figure out what she's there praying about. So... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, there's two ways to read his reaction, and, and both are true, right? One is it, it, it reveals to us Eli's character 
and that he his first assumption is that that's what's going on. But it also probably exposes to us what Eli's accustomed to seeing, which gives us another window into Israelite worship at the time. That's true. One thing that will help us untangle that is right, trying to decide, are we right about reading Eli this way or are we misreading it because of our, our cultural distance, is to pay attention as we keep reading. right? Uh, will Eli be described in ways that make us question our initial assumptions about him and how the text is characterizing them? Or will, it, will the text, as we continue, actually reinforce that impression? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Eli has no trouble addressing her, um, which maybe begins to answer some of that, uh, but that does still leave some unanswered questions, right? Are there aspects of the cultural distance that are we're not seeing as we read? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Elkanah with the, the super helpful question or comment, right? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I'm sure that quieted her sobs immediately. Oh. Maybe, maybe all the guys in Samuel are really dense. No. All right. So I keep reading. Let's do it. So picking up at verse 21. Oh, a couple of comments actually about Samuel's name. Uh, if you have a Bible with footnotes, it may um, you may comment about this. Then her comment is, "I have asked for him from the Lord." But his name means God has heard. His name means God has heard. But her comment in naming him is, I have asked for him from the Lord. That may not seem uh, all that interesting or, or novel as we encounter it here. But Saul's name is wrapped up with the idea of asking. Uh, the verb for ask is sha'al. And so why is it that she asks, but she names her son God has heard, and then later Israel asks for a king, and then the king they get happens to have a name who means you ask for it. Not quite you ask for it, but, but we'll unfold that a little bit more as we go. David's name, by the way, means beloved. So names are, are important to read the text. Okay. So picking up in verse 21. The men Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. What do you notice there? What do you notice there in this last section of chapter 1? Yeah, yeah, oh, wow, that stings a bit when you think about it. The vow that she has made means that in in her prayer being answered, the thing she has prayed for is taken away. Yeah. Here's what I found. Thanks, Siri. I don't think that's going to help. Um, <laughs> she's, she's giving, uh, in fulfilling her vow, as you mentioned, as soon as she's able, she gives up this child for which she's prayed and gives him up to serve under that man forever. Now, that man's probably going to die. He's, he's already kind of old. But, but she gives this child up to perpetually serve the Lord at the sanctuary. This is what she prayed. This is not something she decided later, but this is what she prayed there in verse 11. Thank you, Mr. Clyde. When she first comes to pray at the sanctuary, she prays for this and vows that she will do this. So she fulfills her vow. Yes. Yeah, so he makes this interesting comment halfway through verse 23. Only may the Lord establish his word. Right? Yeah. So if we go back and read the laws about vows in the Pentateuch, right? If a wife makes a vow, right, that entails involving more than just her, right? And so on the day the husband hears of the vow, he can invalidate the vow. But if he doesn't, then it's established and she has to fulfill it. And so whether this is the first time Elkin has heard of it or whether he's commenting on a decision he made earlier, he is saying, yeah, you got to do this, right? This vow that you've made is established. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. He's, she's lending him to the Lord. She's not going to get him back, right? Yeah, dedicated, could be. It's a good question. What's the meaning of this word? It seems to cover this range, right? There are times I lend someone a book and I know I'm not going to get it back. This seems to be something a little bit stronger. That's not a comment about any of you, right? Uh, sorry. 
So, yeah, rabbit trail. Yeah, there are a lot of books I don't get back from people. That's okay. I plan on that at points. But I also try, if I borrow a book, I'll take a picture of myself with the book and text it to the person I borrowed it from so they know who has it and they can come looking for it. Liashi, it's a word that can mean lend, like you expect to get it back, but it can also mean dedicate, is given over to and don't expect to get back. And clearly, based on her phrasing here, uh, she doesn't expect that he's going to be coming back to her. Although she will see him, and, and the text will comment about that as we keep reading, she'll see him as they continue to come as a family to the sanctuary to worship. She even brings him a set of clothes. What else do you see? What other questions do you have? The anxiety and vexation. Uh, I think we, yeah. So well, we've gotten the picture already from the way the family relationship is described. Is It's not just that she wants a child and doesn't have one. It's not simply that she's struggling with infertility. It's that there's this other wife who's mentioned not even by name at one point, just at her rival, who's deliberately provoking her about this. So vexation, provocation, right? Uh, she's being continually rubbed on this wound purposefully by another believer in the family. So the Lord hears and answers her prayer. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm in a good position to answer that question. Yeah. So how many years does it take her to wean him, right? Because clearly she stays home with him at least one year. But is it the next year that he goes? Is it a couple years after that? I don't know. Yeah. Whether that's because it wasn't long or more likely because it was just burned into her memory. Who knows? She recalls exactly what it was that Eli had said. Uh, in all likelihood, it was longer than you would expect in the modern world. Like they don't have formula. They don't have alternatives to nursing a child. Um, and so probably he's three, four, not six months. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. That's not the kind of thing that, right, our best evidence for how long a child was nursed in the ancient world would be someone in the ancient world writing about that, which they, they don't tend to answer those kinds of questions for us because everybody knew, because it was common. It's the kinds of things that you don't, you don't write about it. You just assume when you're writing about other things. And so we can make guesses based on looking at modern nomadic cultures, hunter-gatherers, right? people whose culture we assume bears a close resemblance to what they were like then, but, but we don't know. Probably at least two, and probably not more than five or six. Mm-hmm. So this may be part of the reason the text specifically comments that um, he's very young in verse 24, right? Because it wouldn't be uncommon to apprentice a son to someone else, right? 
to send them to go learn a trade or a craft from someone. But he's clearly too young for that, so that the text actually remarks on his, his young age. Um, the people of Israel would have brought offerings of goods, right, consumable goods, as well as money to the sanctuary so that like, he would have been fed and things like that. But, uh, but whether this was a, a normal thing uh, to apprentice your child to the priests by leaving them at the sanctuary, um, I don't know. We don't, we don't get other examples of that, right? Clearly, um, children of the priests and Levites would grow up in that. But that's quite different than bringing your child to the sanctuary with their backpack and their teddy bear and saying, see you next year, um, which is it's not quite what we have here. But mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a, Yes, there's a delightful ambiguity right there, right at the end of the chapter. Uh, that sentence, and he worshiped the Lord there. Who's the he? Yeah, yeah. Who's the he and why is that sentence there? At the very end of chapter one. It's the very last sentence of chapter one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think most likely that's a reference to Samuel. It's a reference to the child. Elkanah has not been mentioned for some time uh, in the paragraph, right? It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you're going back to... Uh, going back to verse 24, right? When she weaned him, she took him up with her. And there's there's no mention of the rest of the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, but if we back up a little bit in the paragraph, um, we don't... Presumably, Elkanah is also here, but he's not mentioned. It's narrated in such a way it's almost like Hannah took Samuel and did this. Maybe. We're looking at first Sam. Sorry, I have my Hebrew Bible in the other room. Yeah, it's he. Yep, it's he. I suspect, um, as we are, a lot of um, the early translations of the Old Testament felt the tension there, and so understood it as a plural instead of a singular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we find out in two eleven that that Elkanah was there, but he's he's omitted in the paragraph up to this point for some reason. Now the text focuses on Hannah's experience. Elkanah is the first one we're introduced to, but the text focuses on Hannah's experience all throughout chapter one and chapter two. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so chapter 2, verse 11, Elkanah is mentioned. So clearly, he was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, we know from later in the chapter um, 
So verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, presumably she's not staying with him because she does bring him things each year, which wouldn't make sense if you know she's next door the whole time. But yeah, I love this, actually. You guys are catching things. You're asking questions, right? Instead of assuming what the text says, you're looking, you're asking, you're pointing things out, you're resolving each other's questions as you look at the text and, and raising new ones. It's a good text to go to when people say things like the Bible hates women. So people will say things like the Bible hates women. Like, really? It seems to spend an awful lot of ink on one woman's experience. And a woman who's not of any particular significance. We get further down and we find out why she might be significant. But really, it's Samuel who's significant, right? But the story doesn't start with Samuel. The story starts with his barren mom and her experience in a family that has lots of children. There's none of them hers. And it holds up the men around her for a critique by describing the way that they interact with her. So... Oh, he's old. Can you imagine the comments around the table there, especially from Penina, right? Like, it's just one. And she's giving him up anyway, right? Like, no wonder she didn't have any. Yeah. yeah. That's an excellent point. We don't get the names of any of Penina's children. None of them are... We don't want to be unkind to them because of who their mother is, but it's as though none of them are worth naming, right? They're not important to this story. Panina's only mentioned because she's a small V villain in this narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's a good question. So let's let's back up and ask that to everybody. Why would it be significant to explicitly note here at this point that Samuel worships the Lord at the sanctuary. Okay, he does come to hold a special significance as we keep reading the text. Um, so that is true. Is there more to the significance of the the express mention of him worshiping the Lord there? Yeah, he's already worshiping. Now we know from later, or we'll see once we get to chapter 3, that, that he doesn't know the Lord's voice when he hears it yet. He has to have that experience of the Lord's call in order to recognize the Lord's voice. Um, But it does suggest maybe that he's not kicking and screaming against being presented at the sanctuary. He's actually participating in this. And it perhaps explains or gives us a glimpse into why he's able to discern the Lord's call at such a young age when we get to chapter 3. That's good. I think both, right? Um, It does tell us something about the Lord's hand in his life. It tells us about something about how Hannah has raised him to this point. 
there also might be an implicit contrast uh, with others who are not mentioned as worshiping. Maybe. Arguments from silence can be dangerous. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a... And you bring up an excellent point, by the way, that, that he's a Nazarite, right? Samson was a Nazarite. Uh, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And so there's some relationship between, right? There's some aspect of this special birth announcement to a barren woman, and the child is not just dedicated to the Lord's service, but also has this perpetual Nazarite vow imposed on them. They don't get to choose it. It's imposed on them by their parents. Um, yeah, that's a part of Samuel's life that's not really commented on to a great extent later. Yeah. What? Says something about a Nazarite. Moabites will come up, uh, actually, uh, and there's a pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think I think you heard Nazarite and thought Moabite, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Let me read to you Hannah's prayer. We'll talk about it a little bit. We'll develop it more next week as we continue. Let's read Hannah's prayer. It's full of interesting things, right? So she brings her son. She presents him to Eli. She's like, hey, this is the one I prayed for. Remember what you said? Um, Here he is, and he worships the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, Now we get a quotation of Hannah's prayer recorded in Scripture. Which again, to go back to, right, people say the Bible hates women, and then we get this quotation of Hannah's prayer recorded for us. Happens again in the New Testament. We'll talk about that later. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest.
we see. There's probably a dig at Kanena at one or two points. But is it confined to that, right? I thought we were talking about a barren woman who wanted a child and had this struggle with her rival wife. And most of Hannah's prayer is taken up with other themes. Is she, you know, every head bowed, every eye closed, and she's peeking to make sure Panetta's hearing this? Yeah. All we have is what the text says. Right? Yeah, all we have is what the text says. Right? Uh, it says, and Hannah prayed and said, then it gives what she says, and then it narrates her husband going home. All right? Sorry? Yes. Mary's prayer is modeled on Hannah's prayer. As though Mary has learned to pray from reading the prayers of Scripture, and as though we can expect from this birth through Mary great things like we can expect from this birth from Hannah, although not the same, because Hannah doesn't give birth to the king, which is this weird tension as we start 1 Samuel, this book that we know is supposed to be about kingship, and we're not a king yet. All we have is a lousy priest and a little kid. Yep, yeah. Look at the material he's got to work with, right? All right, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yes, sir. Yeah. So most of the focus of what we've read has been on Hannah. But there are two things said. If that's Samuel that's mentioned at the end of chapter 1, there are two things said about Samuel over the course of this passage. One is that he worshipped the Lord there right at the end of chapter 1. And then the second, right after the prayer in chapter 2, verse 11, is that he was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And I think you're right. I think that says something about how Hannah has raised him to this point. She's brought him up in the faith. I mean, we're looking for someone else in answer to Hannah's prayer. Yeah. So what Hannah prays in large measure tells us what to expect of the book that follows her prayer. Um, yeah, well, that, that that doesn't mean that the prayer was composed for the sake of this book that was planned to be written on a human level, right? As though some later author put a prayer into Hannah's mouth that served as like a table of contents for the book. But there is this um, prophetically, in a sense, right? What she prays sets up our expectations for what follows and how to assess it and also helps us wrestle with why Saul experiences the reversal of fortunes that she describes, right? But David doesn't. We'll talk about that as we read the whole book. For Saul is raised up and then brought low. David's raised up from being low. He maintains the throne. All right. Lots of unanswered questions. Hopefully this leaves you wanting to come back and talk about it more. We'll see who's here next week. Why don't we pray? And we'll call it an evening.
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it it functions like uh, Spurgeon described it, as a book that grows with us. We pray that you would open our eyes to, to see the wonder of your word, the way it richly rewards reading and rereading and reading again. We pray that we would answer that call to take up your word and to read it, that we might know you better through it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.